Welcome to Rework, a podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Waylon Wong. And I'm Sean Hildner. We are back from hiatus. How has your month of August been? Kind of the same as it was in June <laughs> and July because uh-huh. time has collapsed on itself. I don't know ever what day it is anymore. Every day I wake up and I have to lie in bed for a couple minutes and think about what day of the week it is, including on the weekends. Yeah, it's tough. I took a little bit of a vacation, which means I sat at home for a week (laughs) and I was the exact same boat. What is time? What is time? You know what I have been doing is watching Selling Sunset. Ooh, what's that? It is a Netflix reality show about a luxury real estate office brokerage in L.A. And it's from the same producer as The Hills, which you might know is my favorite reality show of all time. I I think there was a BuzzFeed article that described this producer's aesthetic as bland, pretty white women having very low stakes problems, which is exactly (laughs) my speed. Anyway, I recommend it. Although, I find myself yelling at the TV, work is not your family. (laughs) (laughs) Every time someone on this show says, well, we're a family here, I yell, work is not your family, Heather. Have you been watching any TV? No. Oh, really? I just, I only watch Columbo. (laughs) Wait, wait, so can I ask you, so what streaming network is Columbo on? It's on Amazon Prime via IMDb TV or something. What's IMDb TV? Who knows? Is that its own streaming network? It sounds like it, yeah. Listen, this goes back, do you remember months ago? I don't remember what we were talking about, but I was complaining about how difficult it is to figure out where to watch stuff when you just want to watch something and then you're like, well, what streaming service do I find it on? And how do I put together a cord cutting plan because it's like if I want to watch this show and that show but they're on different networks it's like how many things am I signing up for and then remember I said someone should just build like an app or a website or something that you enter in what shows you want to watch and then it it tells you yeah puts the package together and tells you how much it costs and all that stuff and I was thinking about that again with our first guest out of hiatus today, Tara Reed, because she has a business and a whole movement called Apps Without Code, which is exactly what it sounds like. She figured out how to build really robust apps without using any code because I I felt like this project I had required a ton of code and I was like, well, I'm never going to get there. But then after talking to Tara, I was like, hmm, like maybe you could actually put something together. Yeah, totally. I've been known to put things on hold or, you know, I've canceled projects completely because I figured I needed X, Y, and Z to do it properly. And it's really great to be reminded that nothing has to be perfect from day one. And no matter what you're building, there's probably some version of it that can be built with your current skill set. So here is Waylon's conversation with Tara Reed. And I'd like to make a quick note. This interview was recorded a few months ago while we were still trying to figure out the whole remote podcasting thing. So apologies for the rough audio, but I still think the conversation is really important. It's a fantastic lesson in just doing the damn thing. My name is Tara Reed, and I'm the CEO of Apps Without Code. And we teach people how to build their own apps without knowing how to write any code and then build businesses around those apps. 
Tara caught the tech bug during a summer internship at Google while she was a junior in college. I ended up joining a team at Google called Google Offers. Essentially what happened was Google tried to buy Groupon and that deal didn't go through. So they were like, we're going to build our own. Mainly what I was doing was I was creating these forecasting and projection dashboards. And I was doing them using like Excel and learning really great Excel skills. And what's interesting about Excel is that there's logic, right? There's kind of if this, then that. That's the same logic that the no-code app-building tools use that I teach now. It's kind of like, if the user clicks the button, then log them in. If the user clicks the button and the password doesn't match their password, then show the pop-up that says, that's not your password. So if you can think through the logic, you can build apps these days. You don't need code anymore. And so that was really where I started building those skill sets. After graduating, Tara worked at Foursquare and Microsoft. It was during her stint at Microsoft that she started a side project around her interest in fine art. She called the app Collecto. At the time, I was starting a modest art collection, and I was realizing that in order to have somebody help me find artwork for my home, I would need a $10,000 or above budget because art advisors work kind of like real estate agents. So they make a commission. And so the art purchase has to be big enough for that commission to be worthwhile. And so I started with this idea of how do I take art advisory and this kind of concept of having a personal stylist for your walls? How do I make that accessible to people? So that was the very first idea that I had. And how did you get into art and collecting art? I was a young professional starting having my own space and thinking about uh, how I wanted to live in that space. And also, frankly, like what I, the conversation starters I wanted to have on my walls when friends came over and said, oh, what's that? And it really sparked a conversation. I was thinking about those things at the time. Yeah, I love how this story so far has dealt with these areas of life and culture that are like gatekept to the extreme, you know, like tech, coding, (laughs) fine art. Yeah, I've always been a contrarian in some ways. So so this concept of making art affordable is interesting to me. This concept of making coding accessible to people who don't code is interesting to me. Like, I think that that's a theme that always plays throughout the things that I'm interested in. And, And I think you're totally right on that. And so when you started down the road of building out this art advising idea that you had, what roadblocks did you run into and what are some of your favorite stories of interesting ways that you were able to work within those constraints and find software tools to kind of cobble it together? I ended up using a tool called Strikingly and to build my website. And the reason I chose Strikingly is because it had fewer of the bells and whistles of the other website builders that I had played around with. It was like, I just want to get straight to the point and there were fewer distractions for me. So by Wednesday, I had launched a website and I really had just like dragged and dropped things around. I didn't have a product yet or I didn't have anything necessarily to sell yet. But what I put on the website, I think it said, become an art collector, get a personal stylist for your walls. And then I wrote myself an email And I sent that email to myself and it was like an email from an art advisor saying, hey, I've got some artwork for you. Here's a link. So I I sent that email to myself and screenshotted it and put it on the page to give people a sense of like what the experience was going to be like. So I'm kind of in PowerPoint laying a phone frame on top of the actual screenshot that I took and then (laughs) putting that onto my website. So I'm cobbling just like the website together to begin with. And then... 
started posting what I was doing on a couple different sites. So on Product Hunt um, and Betalist.com and a couple different sites where you can post early stage products. I also went on LinkedIn and you know, on LinkedIn at the bottom of people's profiles, you can see their like special or extracurricular interests. Yeah. So I was looking for, I searched for people who had art or art museums or art collecting in their special interests and reached out to them, just message strangers. So I was doing a lot of this, trying to see if anyone was interested. And I did all of this before I built anything. Then once I started getting people interested, I started putting together a product. And when I did the first version of the product, I actually used a survey. And surveys have show hide logic. So for example, you can show different questions and hide different questions based on what someone said. If the question in the survey was, what's your favorite color? And someone clicked purple. Then the next question would say, great, why do you like purple? And it would show the purple follow-up question and hide the red follow-up question. So surveys have, a lot of survey tools have this logic. So what I did with that was I put in all of my art recommendations for clients, put a bunch of artwork in there. And then if someone said that they liked photography, the survey showed all the photography but hid everything else. Or if they said that they liked photography and had a budget under $500 and liked black and white, then it showed the $500 black and white photography and hid everything else. And so people would message me and say, oh my gosh, I love your app. It's so great. And little did they know that I had spent maybe $19 a month on my survey gizmo subscription (laughs) to cobble this together and I created that product. And that first survey product that I put together made us our first $35,000. And then also we took it to 500 Startups, which is an accelerator in Silicon Valley. And they made a $100,000 investment from that survey that I hacked together. How did you source the artwork that would eventually make it to your customers? We just found it on public sites on the internet. And then when we had a buyer, we just contacted them and said, hey, we already have a buyer. We want to buy this. And so people were an artist and, and galleries are really excited because we were already bringing them the buyer. And you're using the plural first person, but was it really just you? First few weeks, it was just me. And then I went on LinkedIn and I searched for art advisor uh, because my background is not in art. And I found a bunch of art advisors that I thought would be interesting to help me with this. And then I went to coffee with a handful of them and I picked one. Her name is Emily Havens and she came on as our chief art advisor. So at that point, there were two of us. And then as we grew, we added more people to be pulling artwork from different sources on the Internet. And then as we iterated on that later on, we then found an automated way to do that through web scraping of public artwork on on sites. But it was a progression to get there. Yeah. And how did you evolve the site you built out? Because obviously this is so dependent on uh, the visuals and having the art being very beautifully presented so people get excited about buying it, right, and exploring the art that you have. What tools did you find to help you get from PowerPoint and screenshots to a layout that would be really appealing and that you could keep improving on? Six to eight months in, we moved over to a platform called Bubble. And so that allowed us a lot more flexibility later on. But in the beginning, we just used the constraints of the survey tool. I think one of the things when people are thinking about a product that they want to bring to life, I think they often early stage get really stuck on what exactly the product's going to look like and what 
pixel is going to go where and exactly how it's going to be laid out. And I think for the most part, your early customers don't really care about that. As long as it's easy to use, you just want to get something out there quickly. And then shortly after, you can start refining the design. Did you have a process for vetting the apps that you were thinking about using these different tools, like trying to get a sense of whether they would play nicely together or like, is this company legit or like, how long are they going to be around? What if they get acquired and then they shut down? That kind of thing. My process for vetting the tools was literally sign up for a trial account and try it. (laughs) That was the process because if you look at documentation or the website of a lot of software tools, it's kind of still hard to imagine if you can get that tool to work exactly the way that you want it to. Like I find a lot of people actually had this conversation with my mother because she was looking for a tool. I can't remember what it was for, but she was looking on the website, trying to read their features to see if it had exactly what she needed. And it turned out that the tool did have what she needed. It just wasn't listed exactly the way that she wanted it in one of the bullet points on the features. And so for me, I found that this experimental playfulness was so critical for being scrappy with creating a product and being scrappy with choosing what tools I was going to use. It was like, sign up for a trial account, try it out. Don't spend too long trying it out, but try it out and see if you can make it work. And at the early stage, it was a lot of like connecting this tool to Zapier and connecting Zapier to uh, MailChimp and connecting a bunch of different tools together and just playing around with it. When you were talking about this project with advisors and, you know, you took it to 500 startups and you would be telling um, like technical people about it. How much feedback did you get that was like, oh, you should like find a technical co-founder and have them, you know, like do this and that and like build out proprietary tech for you? Like, did you get that feedback a lot? And how did you push back against it? So I actually did not get that feedback a lot. And I think maybe this was due to who I was working with. But I distinctly remember the interview that I had at 500 Startups. And it was myself, it was just me that was there as the founder. And there were three folks from 500 Startups, a partner and two other people on the team. And we got to the part of what I had done thus far in the business where we were talking about the technology. And this time I still had the survey pieced together, right? And so we got to that point and they asked me, well, how have you built the tech thus far? Do you have a CTO? How is, what have you been doing? And I explained to them exactly what I did. I told them I took a survey tool and I used the show hide logic to put it together. And we've made $35,000 from it thus far. And they each paused and looked at each other and kind of nodded their heads because it was clear that this person was going to figure this thing out no matter what. We can help her with all the rest of it, but like she's going to be scrappy and she's going to figure it out. And I think it actually, in, in multiple scenarios, worked to my advantage. Now, part of that was because I was able to explain why it was to my advantage, but I think it showed scrappiness. I think it showed resourcefulness. And I think that today there's still lots of people, lots of investors, lots of advisors who are not open to non-technical entrepreneurs and non-technical founders building, creating things. But I think now there's so many more tools that you just want to find people who are aligned to that and who know that that's an option. And I think you'll find support that way if you're partnering with the right people. Yeah. And what did you get out of the 500 startups experience? 
I learned a lot about what the traditional startup path looks like, what the path of like raising funds and going the VC funded route looks like. And more than anything, I learned that I did not want to go down that path. And why is that? I think that there's a particular way that your life looks as the founder of a company that is VC backed. And you're saying, I'm going to do everything in my power to build this company such that I can take it public or I can sell it for the highest amount is, is, you know, and get you your money back as quickly as possible. And for me, that wasn't quite the kind of company that I wanted to build. I wanted to build a business where my team got to have phenomenal lifestyles. That was really important to me. I wanted to prioritize my customers. I wanted to prioritize my employees. And so I really got a sense of what I wanted and didn't want in terms of paths. And I think that when we talk about tech in particular, we very rarely talk about this option to bootstrap your company. We very rarely talk about the option of figuring out a way to instead of making it free or 99 cents or a really low price point to charge premium price points so that you have a business model that supports you bootstrapping. We very rarely talk about these things, but that was really what I got interested in in this the theme of a contrarian way that we've been talking about. And that was what 500 Starts really showed me. Tara had been documenting her process of building apps without code, and her blogging helped her land a TEDx Detroit talk in 2015. After giving her talk, she started getting contacted by people who wanted to do the same thing she did. After more and more emails came in, I decided, okay, I'm going to help five people. And so I put a price point on it. I completely made it up. And I was like, I'm going to help five people build their app. I immediately sold out of those five slots. And then I opened it up again and I had 70 people. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, this might be a business on its own. And there was a point where the apps without code business was really, really growing. And I moved over to spend a lot more of my time on that and helping people launch their app ideas, which is really fun for me. There's a tool called Glide, glideapps.com. And Glide allows you to take a spreadsheet and instantly turn it into an app. So that's one of the tools that we teach. We also teach a tool called Mighty Networks, mightynetworks.com. And that tool allows you to create your own social network app. We also teach a tool called ShareTribe, ShareTribe.com, and ShareTribe allows you to create your own marketplace app. So think like Airbnb, where people can buy and sell from each other. You can take a percentage of that sale. So we teach ShareTribe. We also teach a tool called Thinkific, which for people who are creating education apps um, and platforms, licensing them to schools or to individuals, we teach that education platform. And then fifth, we've actually built our own tool in-house called CloudMatch, uh, cloudmatchapp.com. And CloudMatch allows you to create recommendation apps. So based on what you are trying to build, we point you to one of those five tools, and then we teach people how to build their app using those tools, and then all the marketing principles that come with getting customers to come to that app and validating that app idea. So then how did you get the idea to build your own app? And did you build that app without code? (laughs) We're now like way deep into the the spiral here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you're asking about the app that I built to help people build apps without code? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We've gotten meta here. Okay, got it. Yes. So the reason I built that app CloudMatch 
was because I saw a gap in what it was easy to do without code. I had a lot of folks who were coming to our program saying that they wanted to do some kind of recommendation engine and recommendation engines were near to my heart because Collecto, my first company was an art recommendation engine. And so we had built, eventually we built this algorithm that matched people to artwork based on their tastes and we'd done that without code. And so I wanted to make it easier for people to build matching algorithms, either whether it's like a dating app all the way to you want to match mentors and mentees and you want to take that app and bring it to schools for their their mentorship programs to give them a tool to use for that. So so that's where that came from was seeing people struggling with that particular type of app. And also I knew a lot about that space because that's what I built originally. Oh, and then is that app built without code as well? Yeah. So I built CloudMatch, the tool that lets you build your app without code without writing any code. Okay. I don't write code at all. I can, like, the most I can do is change, like, my my HTML hex code color. That's, that's, my, that's my max. And I have, it's funny because I've always been open to learning how to code. I've always been like, okay, maybe one day I'll go do a coding boot camp or go do a program like that. But I've always, my, my methodology has always been, let me push it as far as I can without code. And then if I hit a wall, I can go get some additional skills. And there's been very, very, very little that I have not been able to do and not been able to find a tool for without code. And so I've, I haven't learned how to code. I'm, I'm open to it, but I haven't really needed it. There's so many tools, like even Facebook came out with a tool called Spark AR to create augmented reality without code. Like we're definitely headed in this direction. There's so many tools. And it's, and it's kind of a fun case study for people who feel limited. They have an interest in technology. They feel limited because they don't know how to code. It's kind of like I, I'm using myself as a case study of how far we can take this with just the knowledge that you already have. Yeah. Um, do you like the term non-technical founder or do you think about the language of how we talk about people who know how to code versus people who don't know how to code? And, and do you have uh, some aspirations around how you'd like to see that language be different? Yeah, I hate that term <laughs> <laughs> because, it, because it describes someone based on what they're not. Like we have the same debate in the no code space. Should we call it no code? Defining it based on what it's not. However, I don't even know that it's a good use of time trying to wordsmith it to get a better term at this point, because I think that we'll get to a point in the near future where it's like, of course, you were able to, to do something without code, just like where we are with websites right now. Right. Like I do think that there are some people who still don't know that you can build a website without code, but with Squarespace and WordPress and all these tools, you really can. And so people aren't really saying as much. I built my website without code. They're kind of just saying I built a website. I used this tool. So I, I think that we'll get there more with non-technical entrepreneurs. I don't have a good replacement word for us right now, though. But we're definitely seeing a lot more people looking to create. I would just say looking to create, period. I would even take it for a moment outside of just creating a product and creating an app. Like I think that people are being creative in general right now because we have some more time at home to be working on projects. But I would say that the people I'm working with, who, by the way, are not what I call tech insiders. They're not coming from a long career in Silicon Valley. Usually they work in education or they work in manufacturing or they work in healthcare. 
and they see a big gap in their industry that they think technology could fill. For those folks, people are building one of two things. They're either directly building a COVID-19 related product so that they can you know, use it to help people. That's actually a really small, a smaller percentage of folks. The majority of people are just building tools to help people survive and thrive in this digital age. So they're building tools to help, like, like for example, students have one student who's building a tool for like entertainment venues and nightclubs and dance parties and those sorts of organizations to be able to have virtual experiences and to be able to host them in our app. So that's a really big trend I'm seeing right now in terms of what people are building. And of course, when you do it with no code, you can have something up and running in a few weeks and actually have revenue in the door with that product in a few weeks as opposed to months and months. Rework is produced by Waylon Wong and me, Sean Hildner. Music for the show is by Clipart. If you want to learn more about Apps Without Code, Tara offers a free class that you can sign up for at appswithoutcode.com. She also does an eight-week boot camp for folks who want to go deeper. Again, that's at appswithoutcode.com, and Tara is on Twitter at TaraReed underscore. We'll provide links to these resources in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at rework.fm, along with episode transcripts. We are on Twitter at Rework Podcast, and if you have an idea for a topic you want us to tackle on the show, you can email us at hello at rework.fm. It's like a rough re-entry, Sean. <laughs> hey, you know what? Sometimes you don't pull up in time. <laughs> You're Jack Porkins crashing into the side of the Death Star. That's right. His name was Jack Porkins. It's yeah, like rude, rough, right? Rude name. <laughs> Rude name. I like to really think of myself as more of a Wedge Antilles. Well, we all think we're Wedge until we find <laughs> out we're all we're Jack Porkins. <laughs> <laughs> also, I don't want people writing into us. I know it is Jack Porkins, not Jack, Jack Porkins. I have to say that Star Wars, or maybe this, I don't know, <laughs> is this like universal across like a lot of sci-fi fantasy franchises? It's like, I don't like this thing where you take a name that's traditional and you just change one vowel to make it kind of weird. It's awful, right? Like the entire Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. No.